Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings, oubliettes, and welcome to episode 37 of Movie Oubliette, the cross-hemispherical podcast for forsaken fantastical films with me, Conrad, never eating blood pudding in Cambridge, UK. Oh, <laughs> and me, Dan, willing to try anything <laughs> in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> We focus on fantastic cinema, sci-fi, horror and fantasy because we spent our childhoods building our own spaceships, battling supernatural beasts and discovering snow-covered fawns in our closets. Oh yes, I remember those days. <laughs> oh, I always like to discover a Mr. Tumnus in my closet. Yeah. How are you, Dan? Doing very well, doing very well. And how about you, Conrad? Yes, very well. I think I have recovered from my cold, so my voice should be back to normal this time. Mm, That's good to hear. I have to say uh, that ever since our recording of Mirror Mask, um, that song, Close to You, has been stuck in my head. So two weeks, it's been stuck (laughs) in my head. Every day I wake up singing it and just... Oh, no, it's that song again. It's a great song, though. <laughs> but I did find out that um, the Carpenter's version is, is like the fourth version. Is it really? So originally Burt Baccarat wrote it for an actor called Richard Chamberlain in 1963. And then it was also recorded by ah. another a singer called Dion Warwick in 1963 as well. And then Dusty Springfield also did a version in 1964. And none of them compare to the definitive version, of course, which is the Carpenter's version, which uh, is the most famous, (laughs) the only version that anyone's ever heard. This is true. Well, Karen did have perfect tone, of course, bless her. Mm. And how about you, Conrad? What have you been up to? I had a fantastic time in London last week. I went to see the Stanley Kubrick exhibition at the Design Museum in London, which was really amazing. Oh, wow. So apparently Mr. Kubrick was somewhat of a hoarder, so they had loads of original props and screenplays and notes and letters and models. and Wow. It's just amazing to be in the presence of his personal copy of Stephen King's The Shining with his notes in the margin. And wow. <laughs> the ghostly twins' dresses were there. Jack Torrance's typewriter. I don't know. The original ape costume from 2001. Wow. Oh, it's just, yeah. Just I was just in awe, just gazing at all of this stuff. I took dozens and dozens of photos, so I shall put some on our stream. Oh, great. It was amazing. It was a really fun day. So, any uh, anything in our social letterbox this week? We got tons of responses to the Mirror Mask episode. Mainly, it has to be said, because we were retweeted by none other than Neil Gaiman himself. 
<laughs> a bit of a boost, I guess. Somewhat of a boost. He has like 1.7 million followers or something. So we got dozens and dozens of people talking about how Mirror Mask is their favourite movie ever and how underappreciated it is, which of course made me feel great after I trashed <laughs> it for an hour in our last podcast. But you were there supporting it and flying the flag, so that's all good. We had Eli Hooper say, Oh man, Mirror Mask, one of the best sleeper movies created. I hadn't heard of it until it was long into DVD release, but I saw it on a whim and I've kept it in digital form on my laptop ever since. So surreal and dreamlike. Yeah. Mm. We also had Tom Halsley, who said of the close to you clockwork dressing scene, probably the best scene ever in any movie, which is quite the accolade. Yeah, I would say it's up there. <laughs> Dystopica said, talk about lost in the oubliette. I totally forgot this existed. So, yeah, <laughs> that was great. Pathfinder Merck said, I drove quite a ways to the nearest art cinema that was showing this when it came out. I love this movie. So people really sorted out at the time. Wow. wow and wow. finally, Poeticon Music said, Cool Flick, If I Apologised, was the hidden gem in the soundtrack. So have you been finding yourself listening to that one ever since or just close to you was that the credits track i think so oh. same vocalist i think i did love that track as well it, it is very early 2000s sounding though it is yeah i couldn't help but think of like um natalie and brugley or something like that when i was listening to it i mean i think poetical music uh described it well as having that sort of trip hop kind of feel Similar to like, I don't know, Portis Head and mm. Massive Attack and stuff like that. Yeah, it's very 2000s, I think. Mm. Very much so. And I think we are going to be staying in the 2000s for this episode. Uh, what are we discussing, Conrad? Ooh, let me scamper over to the oubliette and find out. Oh my word, really hammering. What is that racket? I don't know, it sounds like there's a teenage girl trapped in there. Let me open it up. <gasps> What is it? Nobody there. Oh. <gasps> oh my goodness, I'm grabbing this movie and shoving it quick. Oh, who's the guy here? Wow. Oh, there was something nasty in there. Yikes. So, the movie I managed to rescue before I got my face bitten off was Ginger Snaps, a 2000 Canadian horror film directed by John Fawcett and starring Emily Perkins, Catherine Isabel, and Mimi Rogers. Is this our, our first Canadian film? Could it be? I mean, we've done a lot of 90s movies that were filmed in Canada. Yeah. But I'm not sure we've done an actual Canadian movie yet. Hmm. So what is this film about? So, in this movie, 15-year-old Bridget and her nearly 16-year-old sister Ginger are social outcasts, possibly because they spend most of their free time staging and photographing their own gruesome deaths and have a childhood blood pact to either escape their Canadian suburbia of Bailey Downs or kill themselves before they turn 16. Then, Ginger has the worst day ever. The late bloomer starts her very first period and is later savaged by a wolf-like creature while the sisters are walking through the woods. Mm. Her wounds miraculously heal, but Bridget quickly notices her sister is changing. She's confident, sassy, sexually aggressive, 
grows hair in strange places and starts eating neighbourhood dogs. Together with Sam, the local weed dealer, Bridget tries to find a cure for her sister's inexorable transformation into a she-wolf before she rampages her way through the high school's annual Halloween party. Will she succeed? We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We are delving into the wonderful world of Ginger Snaps, a 2000 Canadian horror film directed by John Fawcett and written by the director and Karen Walton. Dan, you hadn't seen this film before, I believe, because you're not the werewolf aficionado, or at least you hadn't been up until this point in life. No, not at all. I have been catching up recently. I've seen The Howling, American Werewolf in London, and Silver Bullet, Mm -hmm. and Freaky Friday. No, not Freaky Friday. Fright Night. Fright Night. <laughs> Completely different film. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's vampires and werewolves. Yes. Yeah. So I feel like I'm still dipping my toes into a werewolf pool. Mm. But this film was, wow, a big standout for me and a completely different take on the genre, especially because the character becoming a werewolf is not a man. No. For once. <laughs> no. Uh, and so a completely different perspective to the transformation. Also, I'd just like to say I was horrified in the opening sequence when the family dog <laughs> is completely torn apart and the dog's name is Baxter. <laughs> yes. Which is my dog's name. I thought, this is not going to make Dan feel at ease. (laughs) This is terrible. It was interesting as well, because I did watch it with Baxter. He's always my companion on these uh, screenings. Mm. And he was just constantly alert, because his name was being yelled out several times. And also there were just (laughs) many dogs in the movie as well. So he just kept kind of popping his head up, seeing what was going on. Oh, bless him. Well, I hope Baxter wasn't traumatised by hearing his namesake (laughs) being eviscerated on screen. (laughs) I think he'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah, well, I hope so. Yeah, the whole dead dog thing is quite fascinating because that's the way that this town, this overcast, gloomy Canadian town of Bailey Downs. That's how they know they've got a werewolf problem is all the neighbourhood dogs are being eaten on a regular basis. Yes, they all just seem so nonchalant about it as well. It's just like another dog. Oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's certainly not shown as the most caring and loving suburban place. Everyone's disconnected. They're all playing hockey in the street, the kids, and this woman runs onto her front yard and screams, they killed Baxter. And the kid's like, "Eh." yeah, it's just carry on playing. Yeah. I don't care. Uh, it's funny you mentioned <laughs> that it looked grey as well because if you muted the film, I thought I was watching a British film. It had that sort of really run-down, mm. dreary look to it. Mm. It looked like a, a British film, but no, it was Canadian. Yeah, I found the streets eerily similar too because the suburbia that you're used to seeing is the Spielberg suburbia of poltergeist. You know, these enormous double-fronted houses with big generous green yards and white picket fences and pools in every back garden. And mm-hmm. Whereas this, it's let's be honest, it doesn't look nice. It looks like Everyone wants to leave immediately. (laughs) Yeah, it really does. So it's not surprising to find the Fitzgerald sisters, our heroes, or heroines, I should say, 
are determined to either leave there by the time they're 16 or kill themselves. Yes. Well, you know, it's every teenager's dream, really. I think it is, yeah. This is deep in the whole teenage ennui, I think, for sure. Yeah, I would describe it as angsty emos, just just, uh, lashing out at their parents and wanting to get high and listen to heavy metal music. I really wished I'd watched this movie at the time that it came out because I was deep Mm. into that lifestyle, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Not really suicide, but yeah, just dressing up kind of gothic-y and that sort of music and stuff. Like, it just oozed teenage angst. Mm. This movie's portrayal of teenagers was really accurate, especially Mm. of the 2000s and late 90s as well. It was so great to see high schoolers that actually looked like high schoolers Mm. and not 25-year-olds. So... I got really drawn into the accuracy and detail in portraying young people and the kind of dreariness of this town not being, you know, a sparkly Los Angeles mm-hmm. picket fence, cul-de-sac, <laughs> completely unrealistic Hollywood-looking town. It looked like a real town. Everything looked yeah. real and tangible, and it didn't kind of sugarcoat things. It kind of told it as it was, mm. and I really identified with that time yeah. and really brought me back to my youth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's fascinating the way that they're actually portraying teenagers as teenagers. You know, they're not these beautiful, well-put-together, brilliantly styled visions arriving at school in their convertibles. Mm. It's not that at all. I mean, it's probably the most realistic portrayal of people of this age that we've seen beyond Josh Hartnett in Halloween H2O, where he deliberately sabotaged his own hair Mm -hmm. because, as he said at the time, he was sick of seeing movies where teenagers looked great because you just need to look at his teenage photos. He said, we look like shit. We look terrible. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Let's, Let's make this more realistic. So it's nice to see that. And it's also nice to see the sisters, their version of emo gothic. It's not really gothic, is it? They've sort of created their own morbid world. They're not listening to Nine Inch Nails. They haven't got posters of Kurt Cobain up on their walls. They're not dressed in sort of black leather or anything like this with black lipstick on. These two sisters have created their own sort of dark, twisted world entirely of their own imaginings. It's reminded me much more of something like heavenly creatures in that respect. It is a very unique relationship that these two sisters have, and it's one that really only the two of them understand. Mm -hmm. Even down to the details, like the things that they wear, like they both have these necklaces that are made out of bird's skulls, I noticed, which Mm. is really freaky. But it's clearly stuff that they've found and made themselves. So it's a much more fascinating relationship to have a window into than just sort of, oh, here's the goth. Yeah, I mean, I think they weren't trying to convey the cliche of what Hollywood says a goth looks like. Mm. Because uh, those two girls, I I knew girls exactly like that uh, growing up in my 20s. Exactly. They weren't just a stereotypical goth wearing black makeup and just wearing black clothes. Mm. Yeah, I guess a gothic... Is not really an accurate description because they were just teenagers being teenagers. Yeah. And I don't know, I do feel maybe Canada was 
a little bit separated from the cliches. It was just quite refreshing to watch a film that showed a high school and you didn't see, oh, it's the stoner kids, it's the skatey kids, it's the goth kids. It's, mm. it, it wasn't like that. It was kind of everyone just intermingled because that's what high school was. Yeah. <laughs> People weren't completely separated into groups. Everyone just kind of meshed together. Yeah. And it's kind of an anti-90s American horror movie. It sets up some of the cliches that you get from some of those slasher movies from the 90s and then just knocks them over. So every character that's introduced, although they represent sort of a trope or they would otherwise be a trope in a Hollywood movie, you suddenly learn something about them later on that makes them much more interesting. It challenges your perception of them in some way. So Trina, who is the archetypal, bitchy popular girl in school Mm -hmm. starts out being that figure and a bully and the Fitzgerald sisters end up in fights with her and what have you but then later on you get a sense of just how desperate and needy she is and in the scene where she has an unfortunate encounter with a kitchen counter and dies accidentally you find out that she's actually quite hurt by being rejected by the town hottie, that she's fairly vulnerable and she was sort of looking out for them almost in a way. Don't get involved in this guy. He's not worth it kind of thing. So she's a lot Mm. more interesting than you think she's going to be. So it's not an obvious movie dealing with obvious cliches, which is, yeah, it's just really interesting to see. You're right. I feel like the character's at sort of face value you think oh it's that sort of character like even the drug dealer you think oh he's going to be the stoner mm. that just gets high all the time and but he's not he doesn't ever smoke the product that he sells he's no. just smoking cigarettes he's a very dedicated drug dealer uh, he has rules that he abides by he doesn't you know walk around with a switchblade and, and have heaps of tattoos or anything mm. even that character was not your stereotyped drug dealer that you normally see in these kind of movies. And he's not the stereotypical love interest either, which was really refreshing to see because although there is a dynamic between the two sisters whereby Ginger is trying to seduce and then destroy Sam, it's not necessarily because she's interested in him romantically, it's just because he represents a barrier between her and her sister, which has never been there before. Yes, And actually the relationship between him and Bridget isn't romantic at all either. It's more of a meeting of minds. They just sort of get on and respect each other. And Yeah, they have a goal that they want to achieve you know they want to cure ginger of her werewolfness (laughs) yes pesky like (laughs) and so there isn't that sort of cheesy chemistry that that's kind of forced (laughs) upon you that a lot of hollywood films do with the love and Mm. people getting together for no apparent reason just because they're kind of working together on, on something yeah I also loved it how the male characters were completely sidelined in this movie. Yes. It's actually a (laughs) nice change because normally it's the female characters that are these kind of wafy, beautiful, supporting 
characters that don't really do anything. Like I found like a lot of the male characters in this movie were that, just there for exposition sometimes or plot turning points, but they weren't really that important. No. I was very, very uh, focused on the two girls. There's one scene where like <laughs> the dad is trying to understand what's going on with Ginger going through puberty. Mm. And then I think the mum says something like, don't worry about it. It's something you won't understand or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was just such a, like, you're a man, you won't understand this. It's a girl thing. And it was kind of like nice to see that because normally it's the other way around. It is, yeah, very much so. And especially in horror movies, you tend to have these distant mother figures. So like in Nightmare on Elm Street, I think the mother is a single mom and she's an alcoholic and she's not really paying attention. Whereas here, the mum character, Mimi Rogers, she's doing her best. She's not completely clueless and uninvolved in what's happening. She thinks it's something different than what actually is happening, but then she soon gets up to speed when she realises that there has been a murder or there has been a death, certainly. Yeah. And takes pretty interesting and drastic action. Yeah, I was really (laughs) confused how she kind of connected the dots as well. Mm. So her husband found the severed fingers of Trina in the garden and she thinks, oh, they're just fake props that her daughters are just using for these staged murder scenes. Um, But then she realizes maybe they're not props. And then she just starts digging. Mm. Uh, I I was (laughs) unsure of where she went from. These fingers are not fake. I'm going to start digging (laughs) in the shed. (laughs) Yeah. I think it shows that she understands her daughters a lot more than perhaps she initially makes out. So she's not the disconnected bimbo mum that Mm. doesn't really understand kids anymore because she's over 30. What does she know? You know, it's she's not that. She's a lot more intuitive and smart than perhaps her clothes and her general sunny demeanour would suggest. Mm, mm, mm. (laughs) But it's interesting you saying about how it's great to see the male characters completely sidelined in this movie. I saw an interview with Emily Perkins, who plays Bridget, and she said that it created a very different energy with the male actors on set because they're so used to being the focus of any story that they're trying to tell in a movie Mm -hmm. to suddenly find themselves playing a supporting role for two young women made them bizarrely awkward and unsure of themselves. and awkward like they'd been invited to a girls night out or something it's just just a really weird vibe on set ah interesting (laughs) i guess we should really delve into the big metaphor of this movie we should puberty yes and specifically the female experience of puberty now i was very nervous about the optics Is it optics if it's a podcast? Maybe it's not. (laughs) But certainly two men talking about the female experience of puberty, it's got to be verging on the edge of mansplaining. So I tweeted this out and Karen Walton, Ah. who wrote the screenplay for Ginger Snaps, came back to us and said, Hi, Conrad and Dan. Personally, I have complete faith in you both on this front. Appreciate you guys looking at Ginger Snaps. Cool concept. So (laughs) we have Karen's vote of confidence. And Karen, if you are listening, we'd love you to be on the pod at some stage. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I mean, we are very keen to get female voices on the show. And especially (laughs) when we find ourselves talking about 
menstruation. Mm. Oh my. Yeah. I feel like the dad at the table now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I do feel <laughs> deeply unqualified to talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. So this film is a big metaphor for females going through puberty and, and going through a change, mm. um, having hair grow in weird places, um, <laughs> being very sexually motivated, um, wanting to lash out at parents and take drugs with boys uh, and do all the things that teenage girls do when they're going through puberty. But also, she is going through a literal change, Mm. transforming into a werewolf. So there's this parallel between the two. And I think it's been executed so well in this movie. Mm. There wasn't anything that seemed forced. Even her, you know, trying to tape down her tail. It's it's like being embarrassed that they're going through this change and feeling that they're so alone. And it was just really well done. It is, yeah. More so than it's been done in movies that focus on the male aspect of it. Something like Teen Wolf with Michael J. Fox, which just plays it all for laughs and it's over. Yes. Whereas with this, it is so layered. It is so dense. It is so detailed. Every single opportunity for a metaphor or a nuance or for a single line to be meaning two things at once, mm-hmm. Karen Walton takes all of them up. And the director as well. I mean, mm-hmm. kudos to John Fawcett for telling this story visually. And there are some great visual moments. I think one of my favorites is when Bridget is dispatched to the local pharmacy to get uh, feminine hygiene products for Ginger, uh-huh. who's going through her first period at the beginning of this. And there's just this fabulous low angle shot behind Bridget looking up at this seemingly endless wall of tampons. <laughs> and it's just this sense of how overwhelming and monolithic this thing is mm. to somebody who's never experienced it before. But that's just the visuals. I mean, the dialogue in this movie is incredible. Yes. Yes, agreed. And I agree as well with so many uh, references to either puberty or being a a werewolf. Uh, I also like it when Ginger gets it on with Jason and then passes on the werewolf virus to Jason. Yes. And then Jason gets his period. Yes. (laughs) Which is amazing. So he pees blood (laughs) and he has a big bloody stain on his pants. (laughs) It's just like, oh, it's just... Genius, genius. It really is, yeah, because he's telling everybody that it's his red pen that's broken in his pocket. (laughs) It's just hysterical. (laughs) And it's definitely not sexually transmitted diseases that they're going for necessarily in terms of the parallel. The comparison is explicitly made in the dialogue, are you having your period? Somebody mocks him for it. So it's, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's very clever. And of course he has the line when Ginger is having her sexual encounter with him on the back seat of his car he says to her just lie back and relax and she says lie back and relax and pins him down and rips his clothes off yeah i think he says something like i'm the man or something yeah he says who's the guy here yeah yeah, that's right that's right that's right she just laughs at him and says you're hilarious caveman or something I think this film does well in how it retains its tone mm. as well. It's a very serious tone through this film. Yeah. But there are a few tongue-in-cheek moments as well. But because it retains its serious tone, 
the actors have a chance to really delve into the characters and how complex they are. Mm. Whereas if it had been done like Teen Wolf, this campy, just for laughs, goofy, I'm going through puberty and I'm turning into a werewolf mm. kind of movie, it would have <laughs> fallen flat and just been an awful throwaway werewolf movie. But it wasn't. It was so much depth. And because it was so serious in tone, you really got invested. Yeah. And that that last scene, I was just devastated Mm. because it it was just not what you expected. I do feel this movie just goes places that you don't expect. It goes down a path and you think, oh, it's going to happen like this, and it doesn't. And it's brilliant because of it. I love that. It is, yeah. You're sort of expecting a very specific kind of thing to happen, particularly in the third act of the movie where you have the high school Halloween party in a greenhouse (laughs) where the local drug dealer plies his trade. So you think that Ginger is going to go there and it's going to be this massive bloodbath a la Carrie or something along those lines. Mm. And then you will get the showdown between the two sisters and there will be some sort of resolution but you don't really get that you don't get that at all and even during what is the big action sequence at the end it's not non-stop vicious violence it pauses there's hesitation there's moments of reflection Hmm. yeah it does feel i don't know is it crass to say it does feel very feminine that sense because instead of it just being all sort of gung-ho and let's solve this problem through violence there is this negotiation that's going on and questioning and bridget trying to figure out exactly what it is that she wants to do and whether she's prepared to take it that far and Mm. it is much deeper and it doesn't wink at the camera and it takes itself seriously and it's all the richer but that's not to say that it isn't funny Uh because it is hilariously funny (laughs) it is very funny i said it has a very tongue-in-cheek stance on just many moments throughout the film Mm. it's not For laughs, though? I don't know. I felt like a lot of the kind of funny moments were kind of funny, but not really made to be a gag. Yeah. Like, here's a gag. Laugh. Ha, 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 ha. It was almost like a throwaway, oh, here's something kind of a little bit sarcastic (laughs) that you would chuckle to. Yeah. It's interesting you talk about how the final scene wasn't completely action-packed. Have you ever watched the trailer? No. Oh, my gosh. Really? The trailer is not a good... (laughs) peek into what the movie is like because the movie to me felt it's much more of a drama really it's Mm. it is it has horror elements of course but it is much more of a drama it's a much more sort of delve into characters and their development and transformation i guess into other characters Mm -hmm. whereas the trailer just makes it out to be some slasher werewolf attacking everyone Mm. blood and guts fast pace movie and it really wasn't it was at moments i felt it kind of dragged a little bit it felt almost a little bit too slow yeah but because of it taking its time you really did get invested in the characters I have a friend, mm-hmm. and he actually wrote an essay about this movie uh, in film school, I think. Really? And he drew parallels between this movie and not just puberty, but also transgender people. So That's interesting. So someone going through a transformation into another gender. So she's like, you know, taping down her tail and she's trying to hide the hair and stuff because mm. it's almost like she is becoming a man 
but she's trying to stop that, but then she ends up succumbing and she becomes a man. It's an interesting idea. I know it doesn't quite work, but I thought it was worth bringing up. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting you say that because I did wonder about that myself. I think it's specifically the scene where Bridget finds Ginger in the bathroom trying to cut off her tail. Mm. And because the werewolves in this movie are largely hairless, it's just this sort of pale, fleshy, wiggling thing that's in between her legs. You just look at it and you think, hmm, it does bring up issues of being trapped in a body that's changing into something that you're not comfortable with, that feels alien to you, feeling alienated for your own body, or making a transition. I don't, it gets into all kinds of areas that I just do not feel qualified to think about. But yeah, I, they're definitely there. Yes. I really do like it how they've kind of made it that the girls are going through something that guys just don't understand, or it, it's kind of told so matter-of-factly. But Ginger is actually going through something that no one would understand. Mm. That's how you do feel when you're going through puberty. You feel like no one understands, even though <laughs> everyone goes through puberty. <laughs> everyone goes through these changes. Yeah. Uh, even when, when they go to the nurse's office, and the nurse <laughs> looks really goofy, and she just says, a thick, syrupy, luminous discharge is not uncommon. <laughs> <laughs> Yum. But like, little does she know, she's going through a little bit more than that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, as Bridget says, something's going on with you, like more than you being female, which I think is a fantastic <laughs> line. I mentioned it a little bit before, but the acting in this is phenomenal. Mm. Like the two girls, Catherine Isabel and Emily Perkins, just wow. Yeah. They really stole the show with the acting chops and just developing characters to turn into completely different characters. And they carried the film phenomenally, and I don't think any other actors could have done that. It's really impressive, and it's a fascinating story, watching these two sisters and how the dynamic between them changes. Because you think the film, the film is titled Ginger Snaps, you think the film is about Ginger, but it's really Bridget who is the protagonist yes. in this movie. And it's just watching her go from being completely overshadowed by her sister. Even the way she's framed in shots, her sister is in the foreground and she is behind her out of focus and never speaks in public. And it goes from that to her slowly learning how to assert herself and then lie to Ginger, then tricking her and acting behind her back to try and fix things for her until she really comes into her own at the end. And Ginger, meanwhile, shows this complete descent into self-destructiveness that is horrifying to watch but as a depiction of somebody going through a massive bodily change that's not unlike puberty and mm. would be very relatable to somebody going through puberty <laughs> yeah. it's just incredible performances from both of them agreed throughout agreed. the whole movie all the scenes with them there was just so much, I guess, chemistry, but so much sort of friction. Mm. I really loved the friction that they had as Ginger was changing. There was so much kind of frustration that you could see in Bridget. And there was so much blatant disregard mm. from Ginger. 
it's such a common thing with sisters as well growing up where one sister will hit puberty first and suddenly be interested in boys and going out and drinking and stuff Mm -hmm. and the other sister being completely left behind. Mm -hmm. Great depiction of that. Yeah. And and the fact that she was actually becoming a werewolf and wanting to eat dogs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there is that wonderful scene where the lycanthropy or the werewolfiness is taking over Ginger and or the puberty, not quite sure which, Hmm. leads to her doing this strut down the high school corridor and she just looks fabulous. Yeah. And all the guys are stopping to look at her. And she, you can see sort of halfway through the walk, she suddenly starts to realise it and realises her power mm. as an attractive young woman blossoming and starts to enjoy it and really get into it. And then Bridget just drifts into frame at the end of it looking absolutely horrified and disgusted with her because it's a betrayal of everything that the two of them have ever stood for and she feels left behind yes yeah it's a textbook example of doing what fantasy and horror and science fiction does best which is taking this ridiculous fantasy element and putting it onto a very real experience Mm. and when you pick something like puberty which always feels like as you say a ridiculous heightened experience anyway i mean everything is a death-defying melodrama when you're 15 Mm. (laughs) so it works so well as a way of examining that in this fantastical context it's very clever Mm. i do also love how this movie calls out on how males treat females we mentioned it when when she's having her sexual encounter and jason just says who's the guy here Mm. that is a big (laughs) call out and also when the two sisters are trying to get rid of trina she's dead and frozen and they're digging the hole (laughs) and ginger's trying to reassure bridget you know girls never get suspected of stuff like this she even says uh girls can only be a slut a bitch a tease or next door's virgin (laughs) and it's Kind of true of the time. Like, that's what men thought of women at the time. They were only those things. Mm. And it was nice to see a movie kind of call out and focus in on this terrible behavior that men and boys were having in the that time and all the time before the 2000s as well. And still since, sadly, to yeah. some degree. Yeah. Yeah. It is good to see, well, they're taking advantage of it, but they're also criticizing it. Yes. And as Karen Walton says on the commentary, boys don't solve problems. Yes. So nobody comes to save the day at the end of this movie. I mean, I don't know how spoilery we want to get, but Sam does not save the day at the end of this movie. He may be in instrumental in determining a possible cure but he does not come to Bridget's rescue Mm. far from it (laughs) yeah very far from it and it is true like I I feel like in society the men have the control but in this movie the girls have control Mm. and they always had the control none of the male characters ever had the upper hand no and it was a really great perspective Mm. i mean as the mother says there's this wonderful scene where the mother has come to terms with what her children have done and she has this fantastic plan that she is just going to burn the house down and then go on the run and bridget says what about dad and mimi rogers just scrunches her forehead and says he'll just blame me they all will yeah (laughs) you think it's true actually 
the mother always does get blamed when something like this happens. Mm. There's a fabulous film by Lynn Ramsey called We Need to Talk About Kevin, starring Tilda Swinton. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, I do, but I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> you should watch that movie. I know. That I is know. an incredible movie. And that looks specifically at this issue in detail and what it is to experience that. But it also it doesn't absolve the mother character of blame mm -hmm. entirely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a fascinating movie and worth watching. But Pam's comment and just the way she sort of shrugs it off, let's just burn down the house and run. <laughs> Let's girls together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <think>? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't blame her really. <laughs> yeah, it is the solution to all things. Just burn the house down. <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia has leapt out of the darkness and bitten you on the backside today? Today, my trivia is about the actresses uh, Catherine Isabel and Emily Perkins. And I would love to know mm. from the cast and crew if this is actually real. But they both auditioned for the film on exactly the same day, and they both got the part on exactly the same day. Uh, they were both singled out by Karen Walton, apparently, as well as auditioning on the same day. They were born in the same hospital. They attended the same preschool, elementary school, and private school, and worked with the same talent agency. So talk about coincidences. <laughs> well, either that or there are very, very few actors in Canada. I that can't be true, <laughs> yeah. though. They all go to the same school. <laughs> and Emily Perkins, of course, and I didn't realise this until I looked it up, she played the young Beverly Marsh in the 1990 TV miniseries adaptation of Stephen King's It. Oh, right. So she's been up against a red-haired monster before. <laughs> yeah. Also interesting. Although Catherine Isabel is playing the older sister uh, in Ginger Snaps, um, she is actually younger than Emily Perkins by four years. Gosh, that's quite a big difference, actually. Yeah. Especially at that age. I always find short people always look younger. Always. Mm. So Ellen Page will always look like an 18-year-old girl to me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. I mean, Michael J. Fox and Elijah Wood have famously looked youthful for a very, very, mm. very long time. Yes, yes. And that's our trivia. <laughs> yeah. This is a werewolf movie. Uh, I guess we should really talk about the special effects and, and also the cinematography and look of this movie. Mm. Uh, what did you think, Conrad? Well, it's yet another way where this movie sort of sidesteps all the cliches that you might have expected from a werewolf movie. The werewolf you see very rarely. It's done practically yes. in the 2000s when people were shifting more towards digital effects. I remember the sequel to American Werewolf in London, American Werewolf in Paris had mm -hmm. CGI werewolves, Ugh. which Awful. did not compare to the original at all, which is right. terrible. And John Fawcett was dead set against that from the outset. And also the way that it shot, the cinematography, I was really shocked that it didn't go for those sort of midnight blue nights and yeah. beautiful primary coloured days. It was all sort of overcast and miserable during the day and the nights were sort of this sickly, sulphurous street lamp orange. Mm. It was, yeah, just visually 
not what I was expecting at all. It's yeah. Really quite refreshing. I felt like they used a lot of red and green in this movie. A lot of mm. red and green. So obviously the blood was red, very brilliantly red as well. Yeah. Uh, and just a lot of red filters. Like a lot of the day scenes looked very warm, mm. but not in a comforting way, kind of in a dreary way. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of the night scenes, uh, the lights... Like, even the torchlight, it looked green. Yeah. So it had this kind of nice green-red, I guess Christmassy, but, you know, green <laughs> and red just complement each other very, very well. And it was a nice change from the usual teal and amber that is throughout <laughs> all uh, sort of 2000s kind of movies. Mm. So, yeah, I really loved the color palette of this. It didn't make things look pretty. It looked almost more real than you kind of expected. Mm -hmm. And the effects, the sort of werewolf, you hardly actually ever saw. So the trailer makes it out to be this very werewolf-filled movie, but it's not. You see the werewolf attack Ginger towards the start of the film, and you, slowly you see moments of her changing. You see her tail, which is... The tail was really well done. Mm. It's very convincing to me. Yeah. Uh, and then she kind of grew claws and her teeth were getting a little bit obviously werewolf-like. I, I don't know why <laughs> no one commented on her teeth. If you showed up with those teeth, I would be seriously concerned about what was happening to you. <laughs> Well, the fun thing is with the Halloween party, everybody just thinks that when she's really getting wolfy, that it's just a costume. So that's quite cunning. Yeah. I feel like that's such a cheap way of horror <laughs> movies having a scene where like, they get away with it. Mm. <laughs> it always happens. Yeah. But the reveal of Ginger in her final form as a werewolf was surprising as well. It wasn't what I expected, mm. the werewolf was mostly hairless, like you said. Mm. It wasn't a big, hairy dog. It moved in a very different way than I expected. Uh, it was kind of muscular and sinewy looking. Mm. Yeah, great character design, or well, creature design for the werewolf. Yeah, and it still looked like Ginger as well, or it certainly looked like the in-between stages of Ginger. You could still see it in the face. So, yeah, very good creature design. Yeah, and I did feel like the final scene was a little bit lacking in what they were capable of doing with the animatronics. But they kind of utilized it really well. They had kind of dim lighting and a claustrophobic space. So you did feel at unease all the time. Mm. And especially when she was in the cupboard and Sam goes out to save the day, but definitely does not save the day. <laughs> he does not. <laughs> it was a really a very, very tense scene when Bridget is venturing out to see where Ginger is. Yeah. But yeah, I thought it was done really well with the effects being much more of a, a subtle thing. Mm. Uh, even the transformation of, of Ginger in the back of the van, they cheated a little, but it's just flashes of because the van's mm. going driving down the street and it's just flashes of streetlights. So you have a flash and you see Ginger transforming a little bit more and then darkness and then another flash. I thought it was a, a bit of a cheat, but it was done well. <laughs> and you didn't have the moment that, Conrad, you always point out in these movies where there's a transformation, everyone just stands there and watches for 10 minutes. <laughs> well, this very expensive transformation takes place. No, that's very true. No, it's in the back of the car and nobody sees it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it kind of sidesteps all of these 
tropes, all of the cliches that they could have stepped right into, they sidestep them yes. so nimbly. I mean, the other one that I was going to point out at this part of the podcast is the soundtrack, uh-huh. which, given the period that the movie was made in, should really be chock full of alternative rock and techno from the early 2000s, so they could fill a soundtrack album with montage sequences with tracks on them with on-the-nose titles like I don't know, the wolf is coming to get mm. you. Or I don't yes. know. It's just really on the nose soundtrack placement. But this movie, although it has songs from the period, they are diegetic, they're at parties, they're on the radio, there are no montages. The focus is very much on Michael Shields' score. Mm. And it's a great score <laughs> as well. I, I, I don't know. I did feel it was suitable. Mm. There were moments that were great and I did like the main theme, a musical theme. The main theme's beautiful, yeah. But I did feel it was very safe, a little bit. A little bit safe. A lot of suspended, ominous tones. Mm -hmm. A couple of jump scare stabs inserted here and there. But I don't know, I didn't stand out, but I guess mood-wise, it definitely set the tone of the movie as a serious movie. Yes. And you're right, it wasn't a soundtrack that they were trying to sell at record stores. It wasn't no. your disturbing behaviour yeah. where it's just song after song after song <laughs> of hits of the time. I did really love the music because it's all music I used to listen to. Ah. And it wasn't mainstream metal as well. It was a much more kind of, not underground, but a true metalhead would like the music. So there was Fear Factory, there was Soulfly, there was a song by Glassjaw, which is a very sort of underrated and unknown band that only people of the time would know of. Mm. So when that song came on in the van, when the van rocks up, mm. I just thought, oh my God, this movie's amazing. <laughs> because it wasn't trying to portray these kids listening to just the top metal hits of 2000 it was much more sort of clever in their choices with with the music yeah and the score was good i didn't think it was hugely memorable no but it certainly wasn't a synthesizer trying to be a full orchestra it just <laughs> created a mood of its own and it had a fantastic main theme which either had yeah. real celli two of them for the two sisters it sounded real yeah i thought it did a really good job of creating a mood yeah. there was one scene where i just wish the music were a bit louder which is the montage between sam and bridget making the monk's hood cure ah. putting that in the hypodermic needle yes and ginger smashing on the bathroom door to try to get out and the music was really quiet on the version that i was watching i yeah. thought you know come on, this is a montage turn the slider up <laughs> i want to hear that track it's cool uh, i don't know i kind of liked the volume of that scene i thought if they turned it up it would have been oh here's a montage oh okay um, i thought it was more kind of <laughs> restrained in musically yeah it didn't come across too cheesy no um, the tone yeah, of the movie it. is more somber and thoughtful i think than yes. obvious crowd-pleasing moves. It gets kudos for that and for the deep cuts on the soundtrack, mm. for sure. Yes. Incidentally, complete aside, Ginger Snaps 
Did you know what that was before <laughs> watching this movie? Yeah, what was it? It's actually a reference to what we would call ginger nuts. Oh, the, the biscuits. Yeah. <laughs> so ginger snaps, it's basically a biscuit or a cookie flavored with ginger, but we call them ginger nuts in here in the UK and I believe in Australia and New Zealand. Yes, we do. Where I believe... I read somewhere that they're the most popular biscuit in New Zealand, shifting 60 million units a year, according to Griffins. Oh, yes, it's the biscuit <laughs> company, yes. Why are you guys so hooked on ginger biscuits? Um, they are very popular dipped in tea. Uh, uh, it's the dunking. I don't know. It's just one of those products where New Zealand just loves them for some reason. I don't know. There's a lot of New Zealand, in inverted commas, food that... Doesn't really make sense why New Zealand's so obsessed with them. But uh, yeah. I guess one, ginger nuts was one of those things. <laughs> it must be. But I thought you could have the pun in a British version of this movie's title, something like Ginger's Nuts. But, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> that has like a third meaning in there that <laughs> could make it even more complicated. <laughs> yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Okay, listeners, I'm sure you're all just finishing up ravaging your fourth dog and ready for dessert, the Moobly Awards, where we nominate <laughs> our favourite parts of the movie in a number of doggone delicious categories. Best quote! Hats off to Karen Walton. Every line in this movie is pretty much my favourite quote. Agreed. But if I had to pick one for being especially clever rather than particularly memorable at the time, it's after Ginger has returned home from her sexual encounter with Jason and she has also eaten Norman, the <laughs> neighbour's dog. And you see her sort of relaxing on the bed, having cleaned the blood off herself, just sort of with a cigarette, contemplating the evening's events. And she says, It wasn't at all like I thought it would be. There was just all this squirming and squealing, and then he was done. Yeah. And I thought, this is so clever, because you don't know whether she's talking about Jason or the dog she's killed. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Sex and death. It's so clever. I love it. <laughs> And you? I do love the scene where Bridget is trying to convince Ginger that she's actually changing into a werewolf. And she says to Ginger, You're doing drugs with guys. Something is definitely wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> that is a telltale sign that you are turning into a werewolf. Yeah, of course. <laughs> there are just tons of them. I think one of the ones that people often cite is, I get this ache and I thought it was for sex, but it's to tear everything to fucking pieces. Mm, and I think wow. that's a fantastic line from Ginger that I think I could just imagine lots of women watching that and just nodding quietly to themselves. Mm, mm. <laughs> Most naughty moment. So we're right on the cusp here. This is a 2000 movie filmed in 99. So I thought I would go for something that was sort of typical of both decades and particularly mm -hmm. teen movies. And it is that if you walk down your high school corridor feeling good about yourself, time always slows down to half speed. Uh, and there's a kick-ass yes. song on the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, It happens in all of those movies, like Mean Girl. <laughs> Donnie Darko, I think it happens for like 20 minutes. It's, oh, yeah. wow. Yes. 
Love those scenes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, for me, I would say just the clothing. I guess it's gonna double up for costume as well. But Ginger's clothing was so typical mm. of that year. Like that. That was my, I think, penultimate year in high school. Pretty on the nose. <laughs> She's got layers upon layers because that's what the nineties were about. You wear a shirt on top of a shirt on top of a shirt on top of a jacket on top of a coat. <laughs> but she's also got you know the nineties jewelry, the choker necklace, the three necklaces. Uh, she's got multiple ear piercings. <laughs> At one stage as well, to test out silver, they just give her a belly button pierce, and I thought. That's the most two thousands way of testing out silver I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah. Best hair or costume? We're sliding into hair and costume. I have to give kudos to Mimi Rogers for her amazing ensembles as Pam the mum. She has uh-huh. to be the most suburban mum that's ever been on screen, <laughs> dialed up to 11. Yes. Apparently she picked all of her own wardrobe. My favourite ensemble of hers is where she's got this red glittery scrunchie that's holding her hair in a top knot. And she's got jack-o'-lantern earrings, a white sweater with a witch design on the front of it. Yeah. An orange fanny pack and pink flowery gardening gloves. <laughs> and this is the outfit that she goes to war in at the end of the movie when she's going to try and rescue her daughters and go on the run. Mm, <laughs> and mm. she just looks ridiculous, like bursting into the high school Halloween party with these earrings and the scrunchie. The epitome of someone's mum in the 2000s. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> favorite scene! My favorite scene. I I guess it has to be the end scene. It was just the final reveal of Ginger in her final form. The, mm. the lighting, I love the reds and the greens and and the fact that, spoiler alert, Sam does not make it and is very much mm. uh, ravaged by Ginger. And also uh, my favorite word, confrontation between uh, Ginger and Bridget in the end. <laughs> Big spoiler alert, uh, the fact that Ginger does not survive and she is stabbed by Bridget and and that final scene with Bridget embracing Ginger as she's dying and devastating and then credits as well I was heartbroken I I thought there was going to be like (laughs) two years later and Bridget's got a job at at a florist and and she's got a (laughs) boyfriend or something like that but no (laughs) she gets wistful whilst arranging monk's hood no (laughs) no and how about you conrad oddly enough my favorite scene is a scene that really sticks out like a sore thumb it's the scene where bridget cures the werewolf version of jason Uh but it's the fact that it's broad daylight It's not the overcast grey day that we've had for the rest of the movie. And it has these sort of Dutch angle push-ins on both of them as they're threatening each other, as they square up to each other before the fight. Hmm. As Karen Walton says, it kind of feels like we're in a Sam Raimi movie for one scene. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, And it's a welcome light break from the really heavy and serious third act that we have coming up after that. So I quite enjoyed that. I thought it was really Mm. fun. Yeah, I also love cool. that Jason has kidnapped a kid in a dog Halloween costume. Oh, <laughs> so it's kind yeah. of like he was going for a dog and got confused. 
<laughs> She's hilarious. Oh, that's brilliant. Most cliched horror moment. Horror cliche. Well, I mean, you have said it in the past before. The dog always dies, but all the dogs die in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but what I thought was a horror cliche of in this film is when Trina dies. She slips on some milk and hits her head on the kitchen counter.、Mm-hmm. I have seen so many horror films where the accidental death is always just slipping on the floor and hitting your head on a rock or a coffee table or a kitchen counter. Ah, yeah, that's my horror cliche for the film. Yeah. And how about you, Conrad?、Uh, mine is fairly simple. It is the shovel to the face. <laughs> Which is、oh. a classic <laughs> horror movie move. The number of times I've seen someone take a shovel to the face,、uh-huh. and Sam does it to Ginger outside the greenhouse, which I thought was funny. <laughs> it was unexpected as well. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Favorite special effect. My favorite effect. I mean, I guess the the werewolf creature design takes it hands down. But I also have to give some credit to the the opening scene. Sequence with all these fake death scenes. Wow, some pretty <laughs> amazing effects there. There's a scene where she has a pitchfork through her neck. There's、uh, a lawnmower scene where her intestines are strewn all over the lawn. Brilliant effects right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and a particularly poignant one in terms of its critique of suburbia. Is the one where she's impaled on a picket fence, <laughs> much、yes. like the nanny from Hell in the Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Ah,、uh, yes. Favorite effect, Conrad? You've mentioned it already. Actually, it's Ginger's tail, which I think is really cool. It goes from being like a vestigial appendage that looks, you know, pretty,、mm. <laughs> yeah, reminiscent of something else, shall we say? Sure. <laughs> When Bridget first spies on it late at night because it's wiggling underneath the covers, which is really, <laughs> yeah. But then it's this horrible. Flaccid, fleshy, hairless thing. When she's trying to strap it down to her、mm. leg for her, and then when Ginger's trying to cut it off, and it's wriggling around in her hand, it just seems to blend perfectly, and it moves of its own accord. And yeah, it's a really cool effect. The tail. Yeah, <laughs> I, I completely agree. It's very convincing. I bought it. It was a tale.、Mm. Best sound effect. Mine comes from my favourite scene, actually, when Bridget's being attacked by Werewolf Jason. She flicks the plastic cap off of the hypodermic needle that contains Monk's hood, and it makes this metallic sword unsheathing noise. Ah,、oh, completely <laughs> disproportionate. Didn't notice that. Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> wow. Yeah, she's going into battle with this as her sword. I thought that was great. How about you? Ah,、uh, I, I thought it was all very competent.、Uh, all the sounds,、uh, nothing really stood out. But I, I did like how the werewolf. Growly sounds were mixed.、Mm. They were huge.、Mm. They were mixed really, really、yeah. loud. So every time there was some sort of werewolf thing happening, you knew that there was a werewolf thing happening,、uh, and it had this massive、yeah. presence every time sonically. Yeah, which makes sense given that you don't see it very often. So it's sort of the sound that provides the threat off screen a lot of the time. You also heard it in moments with Ginger and with Jason when they were transforming. So the scene where she 
loses it and punches Trina on the hockey field. You hear it then. Uh, you also hear it with mm. Jason when in that scene, your favourite scene where Bridget injects him and he attacks her. You hear it then. It was just really well done. It was n- kind of nicely intercut throughout mm. the film. It's subtle. Yeah, it's good. Most funniest scene. The funniest scene for me was when the girls are trying, <laughs> they're trying to cover up the fact that they've just killed Trina on the kitchen floor and this huge pool of blood is just <laughs> emerging from under her. And their parents have just come home and you think, oh my God, how are they possibly going to cover this up? And then you see uh, in the next shot, Ginger is just slumped over the blood and Bridget approaches and just takes a Polaroid picture. It's set up like one of their staged murder scenes and their their parents just think, oh, don't do it in the house. (laughs) Not again. (laughs) It was so genius. (laughs) I laughed really hard at that scene. It was was really well executed. Yeah. And how about you, Conrad? For me, it has to be Jason peeing blood in the urinal and screaming... (laughs) It's just the way that the actor, Jesse Moss, he must be shaking whatever it is that's producing the liquid, because hopefully it wasn't him. (laughs) And as he's screaming, the stream of blood is trembling. (laughs) It's it's just so funny. But he can't stop. So it's just, yeah, it's great. I love it. So good. Reminds me of, you know, how much of a fuss a man would make if he did get a period. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and that concludes our Moobly Award. finally arrived at the Bailey Downs Halloween party and it's time to decide whether ginger snaps should be given conveniently sexy white streaks in its hair and released to prey on unsuspecting horror hounds or whether it should be given an overdose of monkshood and sent skittering back into the oubliette with its hairless tail between its legs. Dan, you had never seen ginger snaps before and you are a relative newcomer to the werewolf genre. What do Mm -hmm. you think? Well, this movie is astounding on so many levels. Uh, I love the serious tone. I'm so glad that they didn't just push out some teen slasher, terrible werewolf money grab film. Uh, There's so much depth and so much complexity. The characters are very engaging and the way that Ginger develops and the way they deal with her transformation and, of course, the metaphor of puberty and girls ascending into womanhood. It was such mm. a joy to watch a horror film with depth and substance for <laughs> once, not just meaningless mm. kills. And I love the fact that the, all the male cast were completely sidelined. And even though this movie oozes 2,000 teenage angst, <laughs> it doesn't do it in a cheesy, dated way. 
it's a nice snapshot no. of the time. Loved it. Every moment of this movie was great. And mm. Karen Walton did wonders with the script and, and the screenwriting for this movie. Yeah, I am not going to disagree with you at all. This is one of the most smartly written things I've seen in quite some time and certainly in the horror genre and certainly from this era because, as you know, I loathe 90s horror or at least the majority of it and certainly the teenage slasher horror that this kind of represents but it subverts every single trope and cliche from those movies and points towards a whole fresh era of intelligent smartly written stylishly photographed tonally rich movies mm. that we can look forward to after the 90s were blissfully behind us <laughs> <laughs> and with a female point of view, with such a smart, sassy, wryly funny, deeply satirical, but moving character portrait of these two sisters and their growth over the movie. It's a fascinating character study. It's brilliantly played by Emily Perkins and Catherine Isabel. It's brilliantly written. And I'm just shocked that this wasn't a massive hit landmark in the genre that everyone looks back to this shouldn't just go out of the oubliette this one should go out with streamers and a fanfare and <laughs> a parade because it's a damn good movie yeah i i think it, it it transcends the horror genre as well it's not just a movie where everyone dies it's kind of like the bubble dock as well it's so many levels of storytelling and sort of satire it's it's great it's wonderful so go ginger snaps go flee <laughs> yes oh it's so great to see another underappreciated gem flying the coop so what will we be considering next time dan well, I thought we'd stay in the 2000s again. Again. <laughs> uh, we'll be discussing the 2007 sci-fi film Sunshine. Oh. Directed by one of my favourite directors, Danny Boyle, and also written by a very renowned new director, or I guess recent director, Alex Garland. Uh, so, yeah, mm. we'll be delving into a bit of solar action. <laughs> yeah, it should be fun. And we will be joined by a guest. Yes, if all goes well. <laughs> <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> yes. And if you do want to stay tuned to our episodes and when they get released, which is every two weeks, you can follow us on all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as Movie Oubliette. And you can also email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. Yes, and if you've enjoyed the show, please take the time to rate and review and subscribe. Basically, just push every single button you can find on your podcasting platform of choice. We would really appreciate it. Yes, please do. <laughs> and we also love your comments as well. We read them out. You become famous. Yes, you could be on the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to help us out even more, you could become a Patreon patron. For one dollar, you get to nominate a movie to put on the Oubliette Roulette to be chosen for a future listener's choice episode. Or for five dollars, you get access to all those tasty bonus goodies. Yes, it's prime cuts. Mmm. 
<laughs> well, thanks for being with us yet again. Join us next time in the dungeon for Movie Oubliette. Bye for now. Goodbye. <laughs> Suicide is like the ultimate fuck you.